Well done, Sheila. But, um, you know, just for you guys as well, just the, the concept that you're here on the 4th of July, it tells me something about you right off the bat, that you are the godly ones. You are the faithful. You are the ones that weren't invited to the lake or to the mountain cabin. Um, <laughs> But you're with me, who was assigned to teach on the genealogy, so we're here together. Uh, we actually, my name is Jeff, and I'm, uh, I'm on staff here at the church, and uh, this passage actually is intriguing. Um, we could go through and look at every name and all the details that, that break out there, but we're, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a look at it from a, a different angle Um, I want to just do the recap right off the bat of where we're at and how we got to this point. The idea that as we go through Genesis, we're literally looking at the dawn of time when God creates man. And as that branches out, this whole idea of what God desired from that, not only did he make man and give him a soul, but he desired a relationship with mankind. So this is a God who wants to be personal in our lives. And we've been following that from the very beginning of creation on. So when we get into this story of the two genealogies here, that the line of Cain and the line of Seth, we're going to take a look at that and, and how they compare. But the, the bottom line on this is that the thing above everything else that should stand out, kind of the theme for this morning, is simply this idea that it is spectacular that the God the, the eternal God, the almighty God, the omnipotent God, that that God desires a personal relationship with you. That if you think about that, that is spectacular. What's stunning, though, is that we, on the other hand, are a little bit careless about pursuing the relationship from our side of things. We tend to take it a little more haphazardly. So again, the theme for this, this talk this morning is simply that, that it is spectacular that the God of the universe desires a personal relationship with you. But it's a, a little bit stunning that we can be careless in our pursuit of that same relationship. So as we do that, we're going we're gonna to look at this passage and to see what it says here. Um, the... The idea is that it, it stops, and you guys just heard it, that somebody was born, somebody lived X amount of years, and then they fathered somebody else. They lived a few more years, had other sons and daughters, and then they died. Um, we could spend the entire message on that principle right there. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. You got the point, didn't you? People are dying. Have you noticed that from Adam on, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah later on, everyone else has died. And for us, we can look at it and say, my great-grandparents have died, my grandparents have died, most of my parents have died. And then you start looking at it and going, some of us have lost our spouses, we may have lost some of our children, some may even have lost grandchildren. That this concept of death, shouldn't, we shouldn't read this passage without it stirring us a little bit of what it says in the Psalms when it says, Lord, teach us to number our days. This idea that we're not just going to live forever on this earth, but that we too will die. This pattern, if you didn't catch it, everybody dies. Everybody dies. It's not like a spoiler alert. You already know it. 
So use that. Don't move away from that to recognize the importance of this concept of what happens here. The death is coming. And that part is part of our story for being humans and is laid out in this story as well. But there's another question that lines up just before we launch into it. It's this idea that um, when we think about what happens and where death comes from and and death handed down from Adam, uh, this whole thing that if you think about heaven and one of the things for me is I think about if I have the chance when I get to heaven, um, there's a, there's different people that I think I'd like to go see and have a conversation with. Adam and Eve is, is one of those couples where you think I'd like to go have a conversation with them. So I've asked them to throw up just a chart um, that is a little bit about the genealogy. So this will show you a little bit of perspective when you add the years that were listed there in Genesis 4 and 5 that you can stop and see Adam at the very top. It says 930 years, and it doesn't matter if you can't see it way in the back. It's, it's not, you know, really specific. It just simply is the lifespan of Adam. What I want you to notice is if you go all the way to the right to that time when Adam dies and draw a line straight down from where Adam died all the way down, you will notice that Seth was alive at the same time as Adam, that Enosh was alive at the same time as Adam, the Kenan was alive at the same time as Adam. The Mahalalel was alive at the same time as Adam. And Jared was alive right after he launched the jewelry store. And then Enoch was still alive at the time of Adam. Methuselah was alive at the time of Adam. Even Lamech, the father of Noah, was alive at the time of Adam. That Adam is still alive, that when they got together as a family and went over to grandpa's house to do the 4th of July, there is Adam and Eve sitting there as well. By then, for that many years, 930 years, I'm sure Adam had probably lost a couple of fingers doing firecrackers, but the rest of them is still there. You could talk to Adam about what it was like to walk with God in the cool of the garden. That this wasn't a lost idea of something we read in a Bible that we've dusted off. This is literally, he is there. Eve is likely still there. And they can have that relationship and that conversation. So that's a stunning thought that as you look at it, we're talking about people that were in relationship with one another, learning about that possibility of having a relationship with God. This idea that it's spectacular, that the God of the universe desires a personal relationship with you, and that we're a little careless about it, can be stunning, but that concept then pushes us into this passage a bit. What happens next is this... uh, This idea of a relationship with that phrase, with that statement that it's spectacular and it's stunning, is the idea that on one side, we know that God wants a a relationship with us. What's left to decide is whether we're going to pursue that relationship with him. And we're left with this picture of what happens in that mix that you know that a relationship cannot be one-sided. If only one person is pursuing the relationship and the other person is not, you don't have a relationship. It just doesn't work. Both sides have to stop and say, we want this. We want to build this relationship. And in this regard, we already know that God does. And so when we look at this passage, we're going to be looking at the two lines, the two uh, genealogies that come out of Adam. 
So next, we're going to pop up a genealogy slide just so that even though you've just heard it, we're not going to necessarily read all those names and all those things again. But as you look at it, you can see Adam right there. Adam and Eve have these children. Abel has been murdered, so he's not, he has no children. But then on the line of Cain, it stops and lists the, the line of Cain. And we're going to talk a little bit about Cain. And we're going to talk a little bit about Lamech on that line. And the things they did that were evil, that had wickedness involved in them, that literally stop and say, this line becomes an ungodly line. Then that other line right down the middle is the line of Seth. And this line switches and goes into a godly line where there's, there's activities and things that are mentioned about that genealogy that stop and lead all the way to Christ himself. And then there were other sons and daughters, but like other genealogies, you track down just that direct line of descendants. So we won't be talking about them as much, but that's what we just read. That's the whole story. It would have been either easier if Sheila would have said, pop this slide up and said, this happened. Right. Next time, Sheila, next service. Um, But that's the way that goes. So we're going to talk through those two lines and how it plays out. Um, The one thing that I want to kind of state out here is that this is going to get a little personal to you because our encouragement this morning is that as we talk through this, you think through the choice you make in this regard. If we know that God desires a personal relationship with us, the question that's left for us is whether we want to take those actions that would move us towards God and have a personal relationship with him. That's the question that comes on. Do we want to be on the godly line, that line of Seth, or do we want to be on the ungodly line? And so that those two lines are choices we get a chance to make every single day. Every day, all day long, we make choices for good or for evil. We make choices that are honoring of God or dishonoring of God. We make choices that are in obedience to the known will of God, or we sin and move away from what we know God calls us to do. So that picture of the two lines should be familiar to all of us, not necessarily the names, but the idea that we literally move back and forth on a given day of what we think we might want to do on that day. Just before we launch in, I want to say one more thing about God. Since he's already declared his desire to have a personal relationship with us, there's two things that I want to pull out of what's already passed through in, the, in uh, Genesis. And that's, it. that's uh, first is this idea that God pursues us. And I love it in the, the image that Adam and Eve, God has already created them. He's given them souls. He wants a relationship with them. He's walking with them. He's engaging with them. He's talking with them. He's given them instructions for life. And then they go off into the garden and they do the one thing that God said not to do. They go do that thing and they sin. And do you know what God does about that? He pursues them. He moves towards them because he still desires a relationship with them. So even though they've sinned, even though they've gone against what he said to do, he comes back and pursues them. And then the same thing happens with Cain. God is in relationship with Cain. Cain brings his sacrifice. There's a a question of what that sacrifice was, whether it was fully acceptable. Cain gets upset and angry at his brother. And so God literally intervenes and talks to Cain and says, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. You got to be careful about what happens next. Cain disregards him, disregards God, and he goes on and he kills Abel. And look what God does. 
God goes back and pursues Cain again and has a conversation and says, your brother's blood is crying up out of the ground. This is the nature of God. When we say he desires a relationship with you, it's not because you're all pretty and clean and perfect. It literally is you, the person he made. He desires you. He desires a relationship with you. That's the God we're talking about. The second thing about him is that when he comes, when he pursues a beautiful story here is that he comes in the name of restoration and redemption. That with Adam and Eve, he comes with clothing. He comes in that ability to bring them away from the garden. But then even with Cain, he comes and he provides protection that Cain wouldn't be destroyed. And all the way down this line, we can find there's a prophecy from Enoch. And that prophecy speaks to redemption. And then when we come to Noah, everything about the ark is about redemption. And if we follow the genealogy all the way down, it comes down to the name of Jesus Christ himself the ultimate redeemer for every one of us. That's who God is. He not only pursues us even through our sin, but he also brings redemption and forgiveness and life in the middle of it. That's, that's the person of God and who desires a relationship with you. All right, let's jump into this question of the godly and the ungodly, the two lines, and uh, what happens with this. We got, we got just four quick things that we're going to talk about that kind of stand out by the overall passage from, from Cain to Noah that we're going to take a quick look at. The first one is this. Um, number one, um, pursue him. Pursue God. That makes perfect sense that if you want to have a relationship with God, the first thing you would do is to pursue him. Now we're going to look at the ungodly line first here to see what happens. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis four. And in this passage, it's after Cain has killed Abel, God has has had the conversation with Cain. And at the tail end, after this conversation, even after God has pursued Cain and engaged with him, in verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And those are the, the scariest words that still haunt us all to this day, because we still choose to do this on a regular basis. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. That little phrase right there is something that I find myself doing all the time. If I make a choice and God might be whispering to, to avoid a sin, to avoid actions, to, to not do something bad, but to do something good. And I might choose to disregard God. And then because I've sinned, I stop and go, oh, God probably doesn't want me. And I move away from the presence of the Lord or because of my choices to stay in my choices. I move away from the presence of the Lord. Now I know that's only me. I know that you guys don't sin, but I thought I'd be a little transparent and go, I've sinned before. And I find what Cain did to be the thing that I sometimes do. That when I stumble and fall, that I often move away from God when the one thing I should do is actually move towards him. And so this verse right here stops and says this first choice about whether I want to be on the godly side or the ungodly side, it lines up on this issue of whether I will simply choose God and move towards him, even in my sin, rather than move away. And in this case, Cain chooses to move away from the presence of the Lord. It's then countered by later in the chapter in verse 26, we get to the line of Seth. And here it says to Seth, Also, a son was born, and he called his name Enos. And then these classic lines. 
At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's just a beautiful picture. That instead of moving away, at this time on the Seth line, they didn't move away. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to say, you know what? I'm not doing well. I've, I actually need you, Lord. I want to pursue you. And they would call upon the name of the Lord. That point that whatever it is that we go through in life, you may have pain, you may have suffering. It may be caused by your own sin and choices. You might have pain and suffering. But even in that, the godly line doesn't move away from God. They literally call upon the name of the Lord and move towards him. So this very first one is just this idea of moving towards God, calling upon his name and believing that he indeed will be there. Number two, it's the idea of walking with God. And this, this one, as you read it, the one verse that stands out on all of the verses is that line that says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God had taken him. And you're like, what does that mean? We don't know. That's ultimately what the verse says right there, is that, that this idea is that, that Enoch did not die. That he lived those years that it said he lived, but at, but at about 365 after he'd had at least one son and other sons and daughters, that because he walked with God, God took him so that he would not die. That's spectacular. But this concept of going, all right, we have that in the line of Seth. We know that Cain has moved away and isn't walking with God and his line isn't walking with God. But on Seth's line, it is because here's the story of Enoch who chooses to walk with God. And so then when we look at this, the idea of walking with somebody is that you would just simply do the things that he does, that the things that God does would be the things that you would do. This idea that Adam and Eve, when they're in the garden, when God is out walking in the cool of the garden, they're off over at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't take of this tree. Had they been walking with God, they wouldn't been confronted with that choice. They would have instead done those things that they knew God wanted them to do. There are three people in the Old Testament that are listed having walked with God. Enoch is the first one. The second one is, is Noah, just a little bit later on in chapter 6. And you will start with verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. So Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God. And the third one, we're not going to turn there, but it's in Malachi and it speaks of Levi, one of the 12 sons. And Levi, God himself says, I am so pleased with Levi and he, his actions have been obedient to me for he has walked with me. And so you have these three names and in all cases, it's about pleasing God, doing the things that God loves, that God desires, that he craves. And so much so that I want to uh, turn to Hebrews, if you've got your Bibles, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 talks about Enoch here and puts a little more a spin on the story. So you get a, a, a little more details. But in Hebrews 11:5 it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, God, exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
A couple of things that are cool about this little uh, insight into it is that this, this first part is that it says, now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That walking with God, knowing the things that God liked, he did the things that pleased God. That's it. It's like if I walk with Eugenie and I spend time with her, I will know after a while, Eugenie's my wife, that I will know after a while the things she likes, the things she loves. And that's the kind of stuff that if you do that with God and you walk with him, you know the things he likes, you know the things he loves. And if you want to please God, it comes from walking, spending time with him, and you become familiar with that. Enoch had this. He knew what it was, and he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That second part is in the, in the first verse of five there. But by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. That God literally chose Enoch and said, I don't want you to die. I'm literally going to take you away from that. How many want to sign up on that roster? Yeah, that, wouldn't that be awesome if God just stopped and said, you are so pleasing to me. You are one of just a small handful of people that will not see death. That's cool. All right. So as we look at that, that's uh, number one is pursue him, move towards him, call on his name. Number two is this idea of walking with him. And with that, though, the walking with him, those things that please him, those are the godly things that you would do. The ungodly on the line of Cain is you remember that conversation that God had with Cain when he said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And God literally says, you must rule over it. This part of it is, is if you're going to be on the godly line, then you have to do the godly things. Don't allow that sin that's literally crouching and having a desire for you rule over it. Now, here's the thing that happens with sin so often is that most of the time we allow it to, to dabble in our life. We keep it close to us when we know it's destructive. Some of you have probably heard the quote from Sitting Bull. He was a Native American uh, Indian chief, and he was speaking with his tribe. And as he was talking with his tribe, he would tell the story about the good inside of him and the evil that was inside of him, that he had these two natures. And that resonates with the New Testament that talks about the, the sin nature, the flesh nature, and our spirit nature, that part of us that is eternal and belongs to God. And that war that goes back and forth and he's talking about it and he's sharing with him about how he has the two inside and that sometimes it feels like they're just two dogs that are constantly fighting, that they're just chewing on each other, biting at each other, ripping and tearing at each other, that there's a war going on with these two dogs. And literally the quote goes something like this. Well, exactly like this. Inside of me, there are two dogs. One is mean and evil and the other is good. And they fight each other all the time. They're all constantly at each other. And then the crowd, his, his tribe asks him, well, which one wins? How do you know which one wins? And he says, it always comes down to the one that I feed the most. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The dog that wins is the stronger dog. It's the one I feed the most. Well, this is what happens with sin in our life. Too many of us have sin that sits right there and we leave the pantry door open a little bit. We feed it. 
We allow it to stay alive, to thrive in our life. And yet this choice that we make of whether we're going to be godly and of that line of Seth and that part where we follow God and desire to please him is on one side. But if we're going to literally rule over sin, then we have to do differently than actually feeding that sin, keeping it close. Those of you who are wrestling with sin, which I think is pretty much all of you, who who doesn't wrestle with sin? Go ahead and raise your hand. This is one of those gimmies because if you raise your hand, you're lying and therefore you've sinned. I love that part of it. It always makes it work out. But here's the part. We all wrestle with sin. The question is, is are we trying to rule over it? Are we actually throwing it a bone here and there? Are we giving it little snacks and we're letting it just thrive in our life when we know how destructive it is? This difference between Cain and Seth is delineated by that just as clearly as anything else. That if you're going to walk with God, then you must rule over sin. Cain did not. That was the destructive part that that made him ungodly. Whereas Enoch did, he did those things that were pleasing to God. Um, Number three. So first one's pursue him. Number two is walk with him. Number three is his word, not yours. And this sounds weird because that's not a normal Christian thing to say. What does that mean that it would be his word? And by his word, I mean God's word, not yours. There is a just a striking passage in this mix that when it's talking about different things, the things that, that Seth does or his line and the things that Cain's line does is on Cain's line, they literally put words in God's mouth. That instead of listening to what God says, they stop and actually put other words in God's mouth. So again, we're, we're in chapter four, and this is going back into this conversation that Cain has with God after he's killed Abel. And he comes in, and this is verse 13 of chapter four. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain just stops and says, this is too much. I can't bear it. I'm going to be driven away from your face. This is, people are going to want to kill me. He goes on this list and he lists off three things. That first one that as, as Cain describes it, he stops and says, this is greater than I can bear. I will be hidden from your face and he who finds me will kill me. That brings us up right to verse 15. Now listen to what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Not true. That is not true. That is not what I said. That right here in this conversation, Cain blows it up and says, this is how God is perceiving me. This is what God's put on me. This is what God's done to me. And right off the bat, God says, not so, not true. I didn't say those things. That is not true. Now that's a weird little turn in this except that it shows up later on in the line of Lamech. Remember, Lamech is further down in Cain's line. Lamech goes on, and we're not going to tear this down piece by piece, but Lamech goes on and marries two women. He's practicing polygamy, and then he goes on and he kills at least one person and possibly two. So we'll read that passage really quick. This is in verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. God didn't say that. Lamech said that. The protection for Cain was a blessing from God where he stopped and said, I will protect you 
the, the revenge on anyone who kills you will be for sevenfold. But Lamech goes on in this line and continues the ungodly behaviors that, he, that Cain did. And even there is putting words in God's mouth. God never said 77-fold. This is Lamech in sin, murdering somebody and claiming that God is somehow providing revenge for him as well. Now, this sounds like, all right, that's Cain, that's Lamech, that's the ungodly line, but I would never do that. <laughs> or would we? You see, all the time I insert ideas and thoughts into my daily life that are literally what I think God thinks of me and is saying about me. Something happens in my life and I go, oh, God must not love me. You know, and it's not quite, I didn't find the right parking spot right next to the front of the store. You know, God hates me right now. But sometimes when difficult things happen to our life, who do we blame? God. We put that as if that's God, that sometimes the way things are happening to us, the things that have been allowed into our life, we blame God. We put words into his mouth as if he said it. That's the ungodly line. That's how ungodly people think is they think God would have done this. And they assign things to God that God never said that never did. Instead, the godly line stops and says, what did God say? What, what actually happened? So this comes back to this. The, don't put words into God's mouth. Instead, use his words. Study his words, read his scripture, understand what he has said, that if we don't put words into God, using his words mean we've got to know his words. So here's the classic, the idea that you just simply start in the morning and spend time in his word. Remind, I want to remind you that this is a spectacular thing. The God of the universe desires a relationship with you. What's stunning is that we are so careless about that relationship that we oftentimes don't even care to pursue it. If we want to be on the godly side and actually pursue the relationship God's already begun to pursue us, we would desire to spend time in his word to know exactly what he says, to read his word, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to, to come. And, and again, you guys are the faithful ones. Everybody else who's off doing something else today, they're ungodly. No, really, it's the idea that the word is internalized because we care what he says. We want to please him. We want to pursue him. So we're going to do one right now. We're going to memorize a verse. Most of you probably already have this verse memorized. In fact, I'm going to ask somebody, shortest verse in the Bible, what's the reference? John 11, 35. You guys know it? Jesus wept. Some of you don't know it fully. It sounded a little weak here. This is, uh, this is not quite a want us, but we're going to get there. Here we go. Everybody say it. John 1135. Jesus wept. Now you're going to repeat it after me, but I'm going to say it once and then you're going to quote the reference and then give the verse. So it's John 1135. Jesus wept. Yes, that's awesome. You guys just memorized your first verse. That's it. You guys should write home to mom. This is awesome. But what I want you to know now is that you have a verse that you have memorized that you can meditate on. And here's what you think when you start to meditate on what God actually said in his word, that Jesus 
actually desired a relationship with mankind and was broken and sad and in grief on what was happening in someone's life. Those two words bring truth and beauty to this concept. What a wonderful thing. Take time to read the word, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. That's that simple. So number one, pursue him. Number two, walk with him. Number three, his words, not yours. Don't go and add things that other people have added. Even Adam and Eve added things that God didn't say in the garden. Satan did the same thing. That's what the ungodly line does. Be of the godly line that knows what God loves and choose to please him. Last one, number four, and uh, it's probably the most clear that if you look at the line of Cain and what happens there. So first one, again, pursue him. Number two, walk with him. Number three, his word, not yours. And number four, don't kill people. I want to make sure you all write that down. Um, If you're not taking notes, this is the most important of all, right? Uh, At least until you're out of the room. Don't kill people. I know that that sounds silly, Except that it's actually a principle that lays out and draws all this together. The difference between the ungodly and the godly. The ungodly don't actually respect the thing that God has made humanity. And they actually put people to death. Cain did it. He killed his brother Abel. Lamech does it, killing somebody. And this other line has a completely different story about it. It's about redemption. It's about bringing life. In fact, as we look at this, I want to quote a verse out of Proverbs 18.21. In Proverbs 18.21, it says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. That idea is that, how many of you have killed somebody before? Yeah, again, uh, we're hoping for not many hands. But the idea that we would be in a situation where we would stop and realize what scripture says is that we do it on a regular basis. It's in the power of our tongue that what we say to others, what we say about others can chip away, can cut away. Death is in the power of our tongue. Sometimes when I'm careless, I say things about other people that tear them down. That is of the ungodly line. Don't kill people. The godly line is the flip side that it actually brings life and healing and everything that comes from it. From when we follow Seth's line, we find Lamech who actually gives a prophecy. You can read it later in Jude. We're not going to spend time to talk about the prophecy that he gives and what comes on from that. But then we get down to Noah himself and Noah brings that salvation through the ark that saves mankind. And then we go a little further and we find the faith of Abraham that becomes the faith of our fathers. And we go all the way down. We could do it name after name, all the way to the name Jesus Christ is in the line of Seth. And he brings redemption and he brings salvation and he brings grace and forgiveness and he brings life to us. We choose today whether we want to be on the ungodly line or the godly line. And we have that ability to not take it up and begin to kill people with how we treat them with what we say. Instead, we would be those who are different. And we've talked about it before, but the quote from Bruce Waltke, who talks about the difference between wickedness and righteousness. 
And uh, this quote is just, it's stunning to me that life can be clearly divided so simply. But he stops and he says, the wicked are those who put the community at disadvantage for their own advantage. Let me say it again. The wicked are those who put the community, put other people at disadvantage for their own advantage. And again, the the basic illustration is if somebody's going to rob a bank, they're going to take somebody else's money for their own advantage. That's wickedness. We don't argue with that. The righteous is the individual who puts themselves at disadvantage for the advantage of somebody else. And this is noble. This is character. This is beautiful. This is sacrifice. And even on today, the 4th of July, we have a huge party going on in this country that literally celebrates this principle. That we celebrate freedom, we celebrate independence, because 200 plus years ago, there were individuals who chose to sacrifice much for the benefit of others, for the advantage of others. That principle that we will set off fireworks for, that we will have too many hot dogs and hamburgers, we will do all kinds of things, but we're celebrating the sacrifice of a few people who got this principle. It's a principle that would side on the godly side. That principle of thinking of others is more important than yourselves. To have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the way Jesus thinks. To simply stop and to say, I am going to put myself at disadvantage for the advantage of others. We can read this entire thing um, that you should pursue him, that you should walk with him, that it would be his words, not yours, and that you shouldn't kill people. In fact, just the opposite, that we would sacrifice ourselves for the love of others. That puts us on the godly line. That puts us in a state where we please God, we walk with him, and we pursue him. All right, last thing. I want to pop up a picture of my grandmother Um, This is Alice Lilly um, on my dad's side. This is Alice. She's the one on the left. Um, The other one is me in my younger days. And I think you can tell that. I want to talk about her for a second because Alice Lilly was born Alice Stewart. And uh, she met my grandfather um, at some point. I don't actually know the story of how they met. But she loved the Dodgers. That's awesome. How many of you are Dodgers fans? You couldn't tell it. I mean, you guys just uh, were you guys that bleed blue. Um, she loved the Dodgers. A lot of times, if I came to visit her, there would be a radio on, and she'd be listening to a Dodgers game. She also had arthritis. She had her hands all curled up into gnarled little fists that she could barely grab anything without just using her arms. So I remember that she was a Dodgers fan. I remember that she had arthritis very severely. And I remember that she loved my grandpa. And the reason I know that is because not only were they married for many, many years, but my grandfather, um, he was a rock hound and he loved to just explore and find different rocks and minerals and gems, that kind of a thing. So he moved them out uh, sort of past Barstow, little past Newberry, in between Barstow and Hell. You know where that is out in that area. He moved her out there, and that's where they lived, out in that area. And she stayed with him and loved him so he could go look for rocks. That's what I know about that woman. But here's the sad thing. I want to pop up another slide. 
I've been doing genealogy since the COVID lockdown, one of the, the you know, rabbit holes I fell into. And as I began to research things about my family, this side over to the left, low, that's sort of bluish, that's the lily line. That's my dad's grand, uh, my dad's Mark Lily, my grandpa's Mark Lily. It's that kind of a thing. That's the lilies. And on the other side is my mom's side, the Strongs and the Sedberries. And those are the two lines that go off that way. And there's a green side right there. That's my grandma's line, Alice Stewart. What I want you to notice there is the lack of names that are filled in in that genealogy. You don't have to read the names. What you can see is that what I know about my grandmother is that she likes the Dodgers. She had arthritis and she loved my grandfather. I sat next to her many, many times. We talk about my life. We talk about what was going on with me. I did not know my grandmother. And now that I'm doing genealogy, I stop and I find out that the, the way to fill a chart in like that is to find somebody who's alive and remembers. She was alive sitting right next to me. You saw proof in the picture that she was right there with me and I never talked about her life. I didn't really know her at all. This story of a God who wants a relationship with you is so powerful that he desires a personal relationship with you. It seems the saddest thing on earth that we would be right next to him as he pursues us and we wouldn't want to know much about him, that we wouldn't pursue him. You guys, we have that opportunity today to simply do this to decide whether we're going to be on the godly side or the ungodly side. This idea that we would pursue him, that we would walk with him, that we would look for his words, not ours, and that we wouldn't kill people, and that ultimately we would love him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am just so grateful for the fact that you have pursued me. Lord, I I love the idea that even when I was in sin, You sent your son to die for me, to to make a a statement of redemption, a way of forgiveness for me so that I could have a relationship with you, a holy, just God. Lord, even as we read through something like this genealogy, it seems to be distant, like there's not much in the passage. And yet, if we stop and look at it for a second, we find that you're already laying out that we have a choice, a choice that is still relevant to this day whether to be ungodly people who just do the things we desire to do and move away from you, or whether, Lord, we desire to pursue you and have a deep, intimate relationship with you. Lord, if there's anybody here that is wondering about you and and desires that relationship or even just doesn't know what that relationship is, Lord, I would ask that they would feel your presence now, that you would surround them with individuals who could share this story deeper with them, but that, Lord, ultimately they would feel your pursuit of them. And, Lord, that they might be brought into this family, into this line, the line that includes you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your your grace and forgiveness. We ask these things in your name. Amen.